Please open to the book of Jude, the penultimate book of the New Testament, right before Revelation. I don't know what's more exciting, to finish a book or to start one. <laughs> the topic for today's sermon may come as a surprise. It is family and parenting. We're going to be looking at the first two verses of Jude, Jude 1 and 2. And if you're keeping notes, even mentally, it's going to be under three heads. Verse number one, we're going to split into two. First, encouragement to parents, verse 1a. Verse 1b will be encouragement to children. And then verse two will be encouragement to parents and children. So encouragement to parents, encouragement to children, and encouragement to parents and children. Lord willing, you're in the book of Jude and are looking at the first verse. Now read with me. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Amen. Let us ask the Lord to help us one more time. Father in heaven, we come before you to ask you to help us now as we consider this portion of your word that you have given us this morning. May it feed our souls. May it strengthen us. May it encourage families who are here. May it encourage parents who are here and all the children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with two illustrations. First has to do with the movie The Da Vinci Code. Released in theaters in 2006, The Da Vinci Code was advertised as an American mystery thriller film. The film's so-called mystery concerned our Lord Jesus Christ, the church, and the truth claims of Christianity itself. And make no mistake, this film was no friend to Christianity. The movie argued that the grail or the cup that was used by our Lord at the Last Supper, pictured in Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, was just symbolic code of a deeper truth concealed by the painter. That the grail was not a cup at all, but rather Mary Magdalene. The film goes on to make the outrageous claim that she was, in fact, the wife of our Lord. Furthermore, that he had a family of their own, and their descendants and subsequent bloodline were kept secret by the Roman Catholic Church up to the present day. This grotesque fantasy film so captivated audiences around the world that it grossed $224 million in its opening weekend. Almost overnight, those in church leadership had to start answering questions within their own congregations about whether this theology was true. 
Because believe it or not, many believe the theology of Hollywood. Indeed, many still believe this nonsense to this day, without a shred of historical or biblical evidence. And in the face of being thoroughly and completely debunked by believers and unbelievers alike. Now you may be wondering, why am I talking about the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> Well, I think it has application and will be a good springboard into the Sermon of Jude today. And besides that, besides warning you and our children about the erroneous and dangerous theology of Hollywood, and even though there is a connection to be made for sure concerning our responsibility, better yet, our command to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, we'll read that in Jude 3. And even though this is, I believe, a good example of the type of Gnostic or secret knowledge that is sown by the evil one within the church today, again, I think these illustrations will do well to set up the context of what we'll be learning in Jude today. That's illustration number one. I, I front-loaded all my illustrations. <laughs> illustration number two is from actual history, from someone named Eusebius of Caesarea, known as the father of church history, writing sometime in the 4th century. He says this, Of the family of the Lord, there were still living the grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother according to the flesh. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian by the Evocatus. The Domitian, that for Domitian feared the coming of Christ. What about that? Domitian, the emperor of Rome, feared the coming of Christ, as Herod also had feared it. And he asked them if they were descendants of David, and they confessed that they were. Then he asked them how much property they had and how much money they owed, owned. And both of them answered that they had only 9,000 denarii, half of which belonged to each of them. And this property did not consist of silver, but of a piece of land, which contained only 39 acres, and from which they raised their taxes and supported themselves by their own labor. Then they showed their hands, exhibiting the hardness of their bodies and the callousness produced upon their hands by continuous toil as evidence of their own labor. And when they were asked concerning Christ and His kingdom, of what sort it was, and where and when it was to appear, they answered that it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly and angelic one, which would appear at the end of the world, when He should come in glory to judge the quick and the dead, and to give unto everyone according to His works. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against them, but despising them as of no account, he let them go, and by a decree put a stop to the persecution of the church. But when they were released, they, that is the grandchildren of Jude, ruled the churches because they were witnesses and were also relatives of the Lord. Well, we know the history of the Da Vinci Code is made up, and sometimes true history may sound made up, but be true. As one author has said, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. But nevertheless, the scriptures remain the sole infallible rule of our faith, even as it concerns our inquiries into the true bloodline of our Savior according to his human nature. And what's more, I believe the scripture this morning will give us something more. 
which may seem strange, encouragement for families and parenting. So what I want to do is give you a brief introduction into this epistle that we're going to be learning together. I think it's good to do so, but it also um, puts upon me the challenge of not turning this into an academic lecture. So I'm going to move rather quickly through this introduction. I hope it's helpful and it will serve the rest of our sermons in Jude. The letter or the epistle of Jude, as I said in our beginning, is the penultimate book of the New Testament, which means second to last book. Jude is known as one of the seven general epistles because they are written to an undisclosed general audience and lack a specific identified recipient. What are these other general epistles besides Jude? James. First and second Peter. First, second, and third John. Add Jude to that, and you have the seven general epistles. But there is more of a rabbit trail than just thinking about who the recipients of each general epistle were, because it's not given to us in the text. It extends even to the authors of the general epistles. So who is the author of Jude? Listen to one commentator. Who wrote the Catholic epistles? This apparently simple question conceals one of the most long-standing controversies in the history of the New Testament. Hmm. We heard from Caesarea, I'm sorry, Eusebius of Caesarea in our introduction. Listen to what he says. Disputed books, which are nevertheless familiar to most, include the epistles known as James, Jude, and 2 Peter, and those called 2 and 3 John. The work either of the evangelist or someone else with the same name. That's from the early 4th century. Well, let's look at this Jude. First, let's look at the name. In the Greek, it's Eudas. Eudas, translated in Scripture as Judah, or Judas, or Jude. This is the name of several Israelites, also one of the 12 tribes of Israel, as you may know. Also, the name given to the southern kingdom. Judah is a translation of the Hebrew word, and Judas or Jude are derived from the Greek. This root word, by the way, is also where we get the term Jew or Judaism. Judah was not only a very common name, but also a very important one, remembering the prophecy of our father Abraham on his deathbed. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Genesis 49.10 Indeed, this promised one from the tribe of Judah, we know, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. When the angel talked to John in the book of Revelation, after no one was worthy to open the scroll, the angel says, Stop weeping! Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. But in the context of the epistle of Eudas, or Judas, or Judah, or Jude, before us today, who are we to identify as this Jude? Well, 
In the New Testament, we have many Judases. And I would argue that it is not the Judas of Luke 6.16 who happened to be one of the twelve apostles. Luke 6.16, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In one verse we have two Eudas, one who is the son of James and one who is Judas Iscariot. I would argue that the Jew who wrote this epistle is not the apostle, for what does our text say? Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. This apostle named Eudas was a son of someone named James. James, Judas, very common names. I would argue it is not the Judas of John 14.22 when the Lord was comforting His twelve disciples during His final night. Judas, not Iscariot, I believe this is the same Judas son of James, said to Him, Lord, what then has happened that You are going to disclose Yourself to us and not to the world? Good question. But not a question from the Jude of this epistle, I believe. Not the Jude of Acts 1. 13 through 14, where it talks about those who were gathered. When they entered the city, they were up in the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, again, the son of James. I believe this Judas, who is the, one of the disciples and later apostles, again, is not the Jude. Although, ironically, most of the Reformers would say it was. Do a sermon on that alone. We talked about the Da Vinci Code being this mystery thriller. If you want a thriller, look into who Judas is, who wrote the book of Jude. But I believe we have a place, in fact, two places in the New Testament which reveal who this Jude is. In fact, let's turn there. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, starting in verse 54, he, that is Jesus, came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now listen, is not this the carpenter's son? Who is, is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? I believe this is the Judas who wrote Jude, the half-brother of our Lord. What I also want you to notice is that remember in the, in the listing of the apostles, we had a James and we had a Judas, who again, I confess that the reformers typically call the one who wrote the epistle of James and the one who wrote the epistle of Jude. But I would argue with the early church 
that the James that is listed here as Jesus' brothers and the Judas that is listed as Jesus' brother is indeed the James and the Jude of the general epistles. We'll talk more about this as we look at the first verse. But that's just a little bit about the author of Jude. Well, when did this Jude, the brother of Jesus, write? There are no explicit time markers, only implicit ones. The identification of Jude influences our reasoning on this, though. If we are correct that Jude was one of the younger sons of Joseph and Mary, then this leads us to conclude the authoring of this epistle sometime around the third quarter of the first century. And second, there's more implicit internal evidence to consider. Jude and 2 Peter's similarity. As we go through Jude, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between Jude and 2 Peter because a lot in 2 Peter corresponds with Jude, or a lot in Jude corresponds with 2 Peter. And this is another debate. Who was citing who? Was Jude citing Peter, or was Peter citing Jude? But either way, placing the writing of Jude in the mid-60s, the third quarter of the first century, not only corresponds to conclusions of Jude being a younger brother, or I'm sorry, younger brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, but it also corresponds with the time frame that we have for Peter's writings. So I think a date in the mid-60s is most reasonable for the dating of this letter. Well, who are the recipients? Like we said, this is a general epistle. It's not written to anyone specifically. But even though it is known as a general epistle, we do have internal evidence that allows us to draw some conclusions. The recipients were well versed in the Old Testament. Jude will talk about the Exodus. We'll talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll talk about Cain. We'll talk about Balaam. We'll talk about Korah. An Old Testament audience would have been very familiar. A Jewish audience would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. Also, whoever he's writing to is acquainted with Jewish literature current in the first century. Such books as the Book of Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, were intertestamental works that were written between the Old and the New Testaments and very much known to Jews, not as being canonical, but as being helpful books of their tradition much like the book of 1st and 2nd Maccabees that we discussed in our preaching in Daniel. This audience that Jude's writing to is familiar with these because he quotes from them. Also lending credence to the idea that he's writing to Jewish converts to Christianity. But we have no definitive internal evidence pointing to a location where this epistle originally circulated. But church history records that it traveled widely. And that brings us to the subject of canonicity. You may hear debates about certain books in the Bible, especially in higher criticism today, certain books that shouldn't be in our canon. Well, the early church accepted Jude's epistle as canonical. We know this from numerous quotations from the first century, such works as the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, First Clement, and the works of Polycarp. They all cite Jude. One of the earliest listings of canonical works that we have is known as the Muratorian Canon, written around A.D. 175. Guess what? Jude is mentioned in the Muratorian Canon as being canonical. 
Furthermore, later church fathers, such as Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, mentioned the epistle of Jude by name and citing it as canonical, which is something to behold because Jude is so short and has so much overlap with 2 Peter. Yet Jude is cited by early church fathers. And lastly, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of Jude's epistle? Well, Jude mentions early that he intended at first to write a very different letter than he did. But providence and circumstance led him to write, urging believers to contend for the faith. And Jude also encourages the church to stand firm against the attacks coming from those who crept into the church, teaching false doctrine, much like 1 John. Remember our time in 1 John where he spent time pointing out these, these proto-Gnostic heretics who were preaching a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different ethic. Well, Jude, likewise, is doing the same. That is the introduction to Jude. I pray that it is helpful and will then be a fertile ground for these seeds now that Jude is going to plant to start sprouting and growing. So let's look at verse 1 under the heading Encouragement to Parents. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Well, we already talked about Jude. I've already given you some argumentation for why I believe it is the half-brother of our Lord, the brother of James, and not the Jew that is the apostle, son of James. So I want to look next at what it says about what he says about himself. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is Jude's introduction. This is him declaring who the letter is from. And he uses a term that is probably familiar to a lot of us. He uses the term bondservant, which is in the Greek doulos. Doulos can be translated servant, bondservant, or as I would say more appropriately, slave in this context. The word doulos has the definition of someone who belongs to another, a bond slave without any ownership rights of their own. Listen to what one author who wrote a whole book on the word doulos says. While it is true that the duties of a slave and a servant may overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired. Slaves are owned. I believe this is what Jude is saying. That he is not a hired hand of Jesus. He's a slave of Jesus. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee immorality, Paul says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. That's slave market language. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Are you a slave to Jesus Christ? Everyone who has been purchased by the blood of the Son has been purchased from the slave market of sin and are now slaves of Christ. 
Jesus said as much in John's Gospel, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The son sets us free by purchasing us from the slave market of sin. Now, you might say, like the unbelieving Jews... I'm a slave to no one. I'm free. I'm autonomous. I am my own person and the captain of my own ship. But that is not true. Everyone, everyone, men, women, and children is a slave. A slave either to sin or a slave to Christ. The real question is this. Who or what are you a slave to? The one who says they are a slave to neither just shows how enslaved they actually are to sin. So blinded by it that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. To put it simply, that person is under judgment. And to that person, I say, flee to Christ so that you may be saved. This is the spiritual position of Jude. He had become a slave to Christ. Jude, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. More on that. That is Jude giving us his spiritual position. And he goes on to give us his physical relation and brother of James. Listen to one commentator. This is added not merely to explain who he is, but his claim to be heard. It is also almost incredible that an apostle should have urged such a claim. Now again, just notice, implicit, he's, a, he's assuming that this Jude is, an, is one of the apostles. And yet not have stated the much higher claim of his own office. The inference again is that the writer is not an apostle. Only one James can be meant. James, the brother of our Lord and first bishop of Jerusalem. So Jude decides not to point to his older brother, Jesus, for ground in the church to say, listen to me, I'm, the, I'm of the same earthly lineage as Jesus. But rather, he points to his other brother, James, who happened to be the first bishop and leader of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, we read of this being the case in Galatians 2.9 when Paul, recounting his calling by the Lord, relays that James, as well as Peter and John, are observed to be pillars in the church. And so it is that Jude gives us this marker pointing to his brother James, another half-brother of our Lord. So, two brothers, Jude and James, both doubting, at best, their older brother. Turn to John chapter 7. 
this will give us some appreciation for what Jude is doing in context. John chapter 7. Here we have a dialogue in the family of the Nazarene. What were some of the conversations like in Jesus' household? We're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to hear one from Scripture right now. Listen to John chapter 7, starting in verse 3. His brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Listen, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Does that surprise you? Does this surprise you that Jesus' own family, his own brothers would not believe in him? Now, we know Mary believed. We have testimony from Scripture that she sang with joy when she was receiving the word from the angel Gabriel that the fruit of her womb would be named Jesus because he would save their people from their sins. And even her cousin Elizabeth believed, who had the baby John in her womb, who jumped for joy and says, What am I that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And yet, the other children of Mary and Joseph, at least brothers in the plural here, did not believe him around the time of his ministry. What would have been like to live in a home with Jesus? Joseph and Mary were sinners, amen? Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> What kind of speculation, what kind of animosity and grudges, jealousy may have crept into the hearts of his brothers? Undoubtedly, Mary and Joseph would have taught their other children who their older brother was. At the age of 12, Jesus is in the temple. Gently, and may I say, with honor and respect, rebuking his mother and father. With honor. Should I not have been in my father's house when they said, Son, where were you? Why have you done this to us? As if Jesus had sinned. He didn't sin then, and he didn't sin by responding to them. That it was appropriate for him to be in the temple, for he knew who he was even in part as he growed in wisdom and stature before man and God. And so it is in John 7, 3 that we have these doubting brothers of Jesus. And now in Jude, he is a self-proclaimed slave of his older brother. And not only Jude, but James, in his own general epistle, starts out by introducing himself as James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why is this a sermon on parenting and family? Because right here is hope for parents who see our children doubting Jesus. By God's grace, not our own power, but by His, our children can become slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? What encouragement there is just in the address of Jude. But there's also encouragement to children. Look at 1B. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Here Jude formally discloses who he is writing to. Not a particular congregation, that is true. In a particular city, that is true. But generally to those who are called. But what's ironic is that this group which Jude addresses isn't those who have heard a general call to believe and repent. See Acts 17 where God commands all men to repent and to believe. But rather, he's writing to those who have received what's called an effectual call. The call of saving grace like he himself had received after the resurrection, it seems, of his older brother. These are they that follow the Lamb. These are they that are beloved in God the Father. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. There's three linguistic observations I want to make on this second part of verse 1. And it has to do with the word called, has to do with the word beloved, and has to do with the word kept. And I want to cite a theologian that we've cited many times who I think gets it right, our brother who is with the Lord now, we trust, John Gill, as he identifies the importance of all three of these words here. To those who are called, as I said before, this is not a general call. This is to those who have been effectually called, those who have heard the word of God and have believed, those who have been brought to life from death by the Holy Spirit. That's who Jude is writing to, to those who are called. Mr. Gill says, called not merely externally by the ministry of the word, but internally by the spirit and grace of God. So that is to be understood of a special and effectual call whereby souls are called out of darkness into light and from bondage to liberty and from a dependence on themselves to the grace and righteousness of Christ. Amen. This is who Jude is writing to. This is the called. And then he goes on to describe the called. Beloved in God the Father. Interestingly, if you're reading in a King James Version, you may see sanctified by God the Father. Either way, I think it speaks to the same thing. Beloved or sanctified, which is to be understood, as Gill would say, of the act of eternal election, which is peculiar to God the Father. Whether we are sanctified, set apart by God the Father in the election 
which preceded the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. If that's your understanding of the word here in the Textus Receptus being translated as sanctified, set apart, I think it speaks the same thing as other texts which have a different Greek word which speak of agape, love, that we are loved in God the Father. Because remember John 6, all those who the Father has given to me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. We said in our sermons in 1 John that you, brothers and sisters, are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And that has everything to do with election. Everything to do with election. This is to be understood of the act of eternal election, which is peculiar to God the Father. Why does, the God, lo why does God love you? Because He's chosen you. Because of something good in yourself? No, because you are a gift that he is giving to his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are kept for Jesus Christ. The last part of the verse. What does this effectual call bring about? It brings about you being given to the son, not just that, but being kept for him as well. Or as the King James would say again, preserved. Now, why would that be? Because you, brothers and sisters, are going to be given to Jesus Christ as a love gift in the flesh when he returns. Oh, you're a love gift to the Son now. You belong to Jesus now. You have been purchased by Christ now out of the slave market of sin. But you will be given to Jesus at the resurrection when he comes. And until then... You are being kept. You are being preserved for Jesus Christ. Oh, the bride that he will receive at his coming without spot or blemish or wrinkle. Because you now are being conformed into the image of Christ by the work of the Spirit. You are becoming more and more like him. You are more like him today than you were last week. You might not see it, but the Spirit is at work. And oh, behold, at our glorification, this work is completed and we are given to the Son. Those who are sanctified or set apart by God the Father in election are in Christ, for they are chosen in Him. They have a place in His heart and they are put into His hands and are in Him and united to Him as members to a head. And we are represented by Him in the covenant of grace. So here's the application and encouragement to children. We as children of God know that from start to finish, all the glory goes to God. We as believers were as damned as the rest at one time. Children, listen to me. If you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you look at your parents as being above you and special, more, more intelligent, well, granted, in terms of our years and our growth, that may be so in terms of intelligence. But we are wretches like the rest of mankind. We were once children of wrath before becoming children of God. 
Truly, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. But God. Amen. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. By grace we are saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. This is the work of God. And if you look at your parents, I want you to see the work of God that they believe. You are here today in the congregation because God has done a work in the lives of your parents and God can do a work here now as you hear this word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What encouragement to us children in the household of faith. What encouragement this ought to be for children who are here, who still doubt Jesus. And I believe the end is an encouragement to parents and children. Look at verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, says Jude. Here Jude places a blessing. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Notice it's a triplet, like the address. He's writing to those who are called, beloved, and kept. And now he prays that they would have mercy, peace, and love abounding to their account. We will see as we continue our study through Jude that Jude is fond of using triplets as a rhetorical device. But look what he is asking for the Lord on behalf of you. Mercy, peace, and love. Do you need mercy? Do you need peace? Do you need love from God? I think John Gill gets it right again when he says, This multiplication intends an enlarged view and fresh application of it. Again, we may think as brothers and sisters in Christ, Well, I'm in Christ. I'm in need of no further grace. I'm in need of no further love. I'm in need of no further mercy and peace. And well, in, in, in a forensic sense, as it pertains to your justification, listen to me, your justification, your standing in the heavenly courtroom of God, that is true. You don't need anything more. If you put your faith in Christ, you are in Christ and are clothed in his righteousness. You don't need anything more in the heavenly courtroom. But as it pertains to sanctification and our being conformed into the image of Christ, oh, brothers and sisters, we need mercy. We need peace. We need love. 
We need an enlarged view and freshness of an application of these things. Because, brothers and sisters, as John Gill says as he continues his thoughts, sometimes we stand in need of these things, don't we? When we're under temptation, when we're under afflictions, when we need sympathy and compassion, when we fall into sin, we stand in need of the fresh discoveries and application of pardoning mercy. And Judah saying, may this mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Are you thankful that Jude prayed that prayer for you? Because I'm thankful he prayed it for me. Because I need all those things every day. But this multiplication is not novel to Jude. We see this wave upon wave of grace flowing from Christ to his people. In John's gospel, he says this, As many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Of his faithfulness, we have all received, listen, grace upon grace. Thankfully, we had a trip to the beach yesterday. And I could, should have used that for an introduction. But as a concluding application, my little daughter Liliana, the last time we went to the beach, she was being held by mama the whole time. Never got on the sand, I don't think. Never went in the water, I know that. But yesterday for the first time, she was let down onto that beach. And she went into where the water is coming back and forth, back and forth. And my wife said that as she was afraid of those waters, she crept up to where it was coming. Her feet touched the water, and the water receded. And then every time the water came back, she said, again, again. Like the waves coming in and out on the seashore, so is the grace upon grace that is given to us by God in Christ. That is encouragement to not only parents, but also to children. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope you're encouraged by this introduction to the epistle of Jude. There is much more. I want to end today with something from the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. Listen to this. Under the title Privileges, if you wanted to look it up later. Oh, Lord God, teach me to know that grace proceeds, accompanies, and follows my salvation. That it sustains the redeemed soul. That not only one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, and work, teaches me thy immeasurable love. How great are my privileges in Jesus Christ. This is encouragement for parents and children. This is encouragement to us all. 
This is encouragement to everyone who calls upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word out of Jude this morning. We thank you for the privileges that are ours in Christ and the wave upon wave of grace that reach us where we are, even in our seats this morning. Lord, we need your grace evermore this day, more so than yesterday. For Lord, we know much more of our sin than we did yesterday. We recognize how much further we fall short today than we did yesterday. For your spirit is at work teaching us to hate our sin and to love your son. Oh, Father, for the families who are here, may this message be encouraging that even in the natural descent of our Lord, his own brothers rejected him, but then became self-proclaimed slaves of him. We thank you as children in the Lord that you have made us self-proclaimed slaves of your son, Jesus Christ. And we beg you, Father, that you would do the same as it concerns our children, that everyone in this room would become a self-proclaimed doulos, slave of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is redemption even the forgiveness of our sins. We call upon his name now and ask. Amen.